0: LC. I'm an Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University and a co-host of the podcast Burn It All Down. I specialize in Latin America and so Latin American popular culture, football, history is mostly what I spend my life working on.
1: And um, what book or books are you going to talk about today?
0: So I'm going to talk about two totally different books. Um, One, Get Her Off the Pitch by Lynn Truce and the other, The Country of Football, Soccer and the Making of Modern Brazil by Roger Kittleson.
1: Uh, When when did these books come into your life and why do they mean so much to you?
0: Well, when I started veering a little bit off of uh, just an exclusive academic track and into writing some more popular journalistic pieces. Someone uh, recommended to me, I think it was Jen, Jen Williams uh, Jean Williams, and Jen Doyle, sorry, um, who said you have to read Get Her Off the Pitch by Lynn Truce because so much of what you're saying you've experienced is in that book and it's quite a bit older and it'll just, it, it'll just make you feel sort of validated. Um, a lot of times when you're working and you experience sexism, and I'm sure this is true about classism and racism and everything else you you can internalize it and you can also be confused as to whether it's really happening to you so a lot of times when you hear the exact same thing happen to someone else you say okay yeah that wasn't just me that was that was a that was something you know real that was happening and i'm pretty famous for not caring about english football i'm really sorry to all your listeners Um, in fact, I have an article in which I state that soccer might've been invented in England or Scotland, but it was perfected in Latin America. So it's, it was one of those things where there's tons of shires and things in that book that I didn't even know anything about, but the writing is lovely and the sports are good and she has great analysis. And I just think among sports people, especially in Latin America, not enough people have read it. Um, I think in, in Great Britain she has a lot of readership. so I just wanted to throw that out there. And then on a totally different at the same time, well a little bit after, um, I read Roger Kittleson's The Country of, of Football and that's a completely different book. But I kind of wanted to put the two together as being really important for me for like from the one perspective, Lynn Truth is about the process of writing, right? what you kind of go through and your experience in that and Roger Kittleson's is about football itself and that's really one of my favorite books because there's so much lore and mythology and origin stories in Brazilian soccer and they can be really fun but as an historian it is a really careful and detailed Still loving, but certainly not romantic, view of kind of the birth of Brazilian football as the, the national sport, but also as a kind of uh, set of industries and government policies.
1: Let's look at Lynn Truss's book first, because a lot of people don't know we're in this country because of It Shoots and Leaves, mm-hmm. uh, which is a a, you know, a, a publishing behemoth. For many, many years and, and it was my background as a print journalist as well, and a sub-editor or a copy editor as, as Americans call it. So it's one of those sort of bibles that everyone of my kind of age and, uh, has read. But this is a, one of these interesting books, it's not quite a fish-out-of-water book, it's more of a somebody who doesn't know much about sport but is a very good writer, goes and tries to uh, think about the, the art of writing about sport when you don't know a lot about those sports. What was it first that attracted you to it?
0: Well, like I said, I think there is a a commonality um, in terms of the field, not just the journalistic field, but the field of sports itself. So why do so many women academics and writers and thinkers feel so marginalized from sport? And, And it's not like it just accidentally happens to them. It's part of kind of both intentional and sometimes totally unintentional Practices and structures that are within sport that send the message to women that you can't really know about this, and certainly you can't be an expert about it. Yeah, even yeah. if you are, that's more frustrating than interesting.
1: And the fact that she's a middle-aged woman as well, she's not. she, yeah. isn't, she isn't one of these kind of uh, you know young women who is groomed for stardom, particularly within television sport. She's right. a middle-aged woman who lives a fairly ordinary life who happens to have also been a very successful. Writer and literary editor of a major newspaper.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. But I also think it's a testament to the way in which sports writers are writers, and you know she totally kicks ass at it. So like you know she happens to be very good, and she's also very careful to kind of give credit to some of the really good writing that might be seen as mundane. You know, the match report and. Lots of people have said the match report is dead. Who cares about it? Um, and she actually she actually does, a, a, I think, a very good job of explaining the art of that.
1: I used to work with, uh, they were largely old fellas, but um, they used to be able to do 750 words over the phone to, to a copy taker without notes yeah. word perfect. Yeah. Uh, anybody who says that the match report is like utilitarian or boring or dull, has no idea of the craft of a good match report. Mm
0: hmm. And I think she does. I think yeah. she describes it and the making of it and the conditions of it really beautifully. So she doesn't claim to have mastered every aspect of, of sports writing in that book. She's very careful. But the other thing that's great about this book, and, and people I think will appreciate it, is just how sports can really ruin your life. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, she leaves, but she doesn't leave because she hates sports writing. Um, But the way it becomes a frustration and obsession, uh, it can, it can, of course, we're missing it all now, right? Um, I've watched, I I did a match report, just like many people, like a match call of, um, of my daughter jumping in puddles. (laughs) Uh, And I have a fantasy co-caller with me named Chuck. And we we so like I, I'm desperately missing sports, but it's also a really good moment to reevaluate what role they play in their li- your life and what kind of sports you want after this pandemic is over. Because uh, she definitely describes the ways in which it can become a negative. Do you
1: not know, think she also kind of pricks the um, the 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 pomposity of a certain type of male sports writer? I'm thinking about Mailer and Plimpton. And the people who who take this aggressively male macho approach, they almost become like the kind of the the Hemingways of sports writing, when actually sport really isn't that important. And she kind of is able to to sit on the right side of that dividing line, and it's not having that kind of almost toxic masculinity is really stands her in good stead, doesn't it?
0: Think it does. And I think that's one of the reasons why the book continues to be worth reading, you know, even though it's it's now a bit dated. Um I think it I, I think it absolutely does. I think that Plimpton and and the likes of Plimpton, and and don't get me wrong, I actually have enjoyed plenty of pieces of Plimpton. Um, but I think that sort of figure as the all-knowing expert who can who can sort of almost take um, the most aggressive and singularly, the idea of a singular genius and then extrapolate it from sports to themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think she she definitely pokes at that and and takes it, t- sort of puts it in the light that it deserves, a critical light that it deserves.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I love the fight by Mailer, um, but the documentary, mm-hmm. When We Were Kings, The two Mm -hmm. single most boring people interviewed in that documentary are George Plimpton and Norman Mailer because it's quite (laughs) clear that George Plimpton and Norman Mailer are using Muhammad Ali and George Foreman as a canvas upon which to paint their own genius.
0: You know, that's one of my favorite documentaries, if you ever do your favorite documentary. Um, but it's not my favorite documentary because I think it's done perfectly well. And, and certainly, like, it, it, that's one of the problems, right? It never really gets at the spectator level. You never see, you know, a woman cross the screen that's not, you know, sort of portrayed as either an exotic African magic healer. Or, or a sexy musical backup singer. And there were plenty of women leaving. you know, that, the, the sort of civil unrest in Zaire and quest for democratization that would have been fascinating to ask them. Like, hey, did you have a, did you have any, did this have any resonance with you whatsoever?
1: Uh, but it also, it, it becomes a bit of a sausage fest as well, insofar okay. as it's a bit like one of the things that Lee McGowan talks about in uh, in his book on football on football fiction, where he talks about, um, you know, that a lot of the kind of early memoirs in British football show that the, these writers, like, you know, for instance, Hornby or people like that, they're effectively, as Hugh McLevaney described them as, literary onanists, that it's all about them and that the game becomes a vehicle for them as opposed to the other way around. And Truss actually uses sport in a completely different way, doesn't she? It's not really yeah. about her. It's about kind of you know the, the the chapter on golf is called you know the Basic Misogyny of Sport. She uses sport to look at a bigger issue rather than simply about herself,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely, even though she's talking about her experience, yeah all the time, you're getting the sense that she's trying very hard to only use that perspective in the sense that it's useful to understanding the landscape and the way in which it affects one's life and the significance that it can have as a person who's not, you know, a Plimpton or a mailer.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I've not read The Country of Football by Kittleston. So is, is, it, is it a book that that, that attempts to... Tell the history of Brazil or the recent history of Brazil simply through football, or is there something more to it?
0: So, um, the great thing about this book, and I think, um, to like, it, it, if if you were going to put these books together, which are incredibly different books, the thing about this book is it also tries to poke at a bunch of different myths. Um, he goes through so so he's talking about the history of Brazil, but he's also talking about um, the ways in which the history of Brazil has been remembered through football and what political function that has today, um, and and sort of. The overtly political nature of some of the teams, but then some of the sort of more mechanical stuff, like how they tried to sort of mobilize all the scientific and medical community that they could through sports medicine and the businesses to produce the team in 1958 that they produced. And what that says about Brazil, but also, you know, it says a lot about football, of course, because it's Brazil, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, it, so in that sense, um, that he has this great chapter called "The Business of Women Winning Brand Brazil in the New Globalism," um, which is about kind of Nike's capturing of the idea of Jogo Bonito and just the kind of global buy-in to that. And it's it's really really good at dealing with the issue of Ronaldo and all of these stars and how they represent something more than themselves. And so it's, he goes through, he kind of get these this great sources where he describes the way in which actually, let's say like Ronaldo's um, issues, medical issues and doctors and things like that were sort of woven into these political conspiracies, but actually um, really are just sort of probably what they were. (laughs) And then then goes through about the ways in which that becomes capitalized upon and how like these athletes experiences just sort of go by the wayside to serve the needs of Nike and the Brazilian state. And so it's great because it's about Brazil, but it's also about all of us who consume Brazil all the time through football.
1: It's often it's interesting. I don't know what it's like in the states, or indeed what it's like in in South America or Latin America. But it's often suggested in Britain that one of the reasons why we revere Brazil so much in a European context is is that the first color television World Cup was nineteen seventy. And so while equally good Brazil teams won World Cups in fifty eight and sixty two, we don't revere them as much because we don't see the the shockingly sunshine bright yellow uh, jerseys worn by Pele and, uh, and that crowd, and it sort of vividly, football vividly burst into life in a non-black and white way that 1966 is always remembered. Is there something to do with the confluence of, of, of colour television, of, of televising the exotic or televising the global? And and Brazil happened to coincidentally win at the right time that has kept that brand so potent for so long because there have been really rubbish Brazil teams in between that time and, Mm -hmm. and they still have some kind of global resonance in a way that sometimes doesn't befit them.
0: Well, you know, I think I think that's what this book is so good at doing, is showing the ways in which that's often manufactured. The idea of Jogo Bonito is very sort of manufactured oh, yeah. um for a global market. 1970, I mean, if you look at it politically is just a nightmare, right? I mean, yeah. Brazil's under a really um terrible authoritarian dictatorship, it takes place in Mexico. Right after the '68 Olympics, which saw you know terrible massacre of students by the Mexican government, um, so this is this is not like a wonderful political moment um, in Latin America, unless maybe you're excited about a Yende's election in Chile, which would be maybe. <laughs> but yeah,
1: that, um, that ultimately didn't last too long, did it?
0: Right, but I mean, you know, I there. It's not that there's no sort of positive spots at all in that political history, but certainly Brazil. Um, and uh, Mexico are two places that are really struggling with authoritarian states in that moment. And so the idea of like a a shiny team is not accidental or coincidental, but one that was very important for the government. And this is also the moment when you're talking about Jao Havelange making big plays to, you know, leap from uh, you know, just CBF and little FIFA to big, big, big time FIFA, which color television has a lot uh, to do with, certainly and in the incorporation of Africa and decolonization. So all that's going on. And it makes sense why Brazil might be everybody's team that isn't so sort of European focused. At the same time, it really gives you pause as to, as to who's behind that team. Um, but also, you know, I mean, it's Pelé, it's, polit- it's it's great Pelé at the end of great Pelé.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And and it, it so aesthetically they really just are beautiful.
1: Well, they did score. And, uh, it has to be said they know, did score one of the most beautiful goals of all time which you can watch over and over and over again. It's a, it's something that's for the ages. It's a, it was almost invented for YouTube, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, they've got the material. That's the thing about sport. No matter how much you want to manipulate it, if, if there's not the material there to do it with, it's very hard for yeah. a government to take that and make it from nothing. But the Brazilian government didn't have that problem. You know, Nike doesn't have that problem when it comes to Brazil. It has plenty of, you know, athletic prowess and beautiful achievement with which to draw from. So, you know, I mean, it becomes easy, not easy, but it, it certainly it certainly makes it more possible to spread that brand when there really is a kind of, you know, I think, I think 1970 is a gorgeous team. I really, I really think color television or not. I mean, I, I wrote my book has, my first book is just on Chilean soccer and I do a ton with 1962. You know, it's very low scoring. Pelé leaves, you know, I think round three. Um, I don't, I don't think that team, even with the story of Gahincha, is going to be 1970.
1: No. No, um, and the great thing about that, the Carlos Alberto goal, is the complete lack of effort that Pele puts in to knock the final pass. It's beautiful <laughs> in and of itself. He just kind of shrugs the ball disinterestedly yeah. to his right. It's just one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen anywhere.
0: Well, it's one of those cases where you can tell he doesn't have to think about it, right? It's a repertoire. It's like a physical relationship that they've had that that isn't it's artistry and it's it's brilliant it really is but it's also something that has been routinized within him so it's not like he has to put forth a ton of effort this is something that's like second nature at that point it's you know Borju's Doxa, right
1: <laughs> yeah uh, tell me this I'm, I'm a massive music fan and and uh, I'm really interested in Brazilian music uh, it, it's just struck me as you're talking there that one of the first countries to become, you know, globalized within music was Brazil, that this team coincides with Gilberto Gil and Tropicalia and, and that kind of movement, which emerges out of Sao Paulo and, and Rio at that time. Why, why do you think Brazil was one of the first to be able to do that or was the first to be discovered by the West in inverted commas? Well, think, which, of course, it's not the West, it's the East for Brazil anyway, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think, I think, you know, in the 1920s, Brazil also had, uh, and and through Vargas, taking Samba as a national, um, you know, sort of national uh, practice as well. Uh, Samba schools were very popular in the 20s. they are civic associations that create a lot of this, like, cultural output that then builds a pretty powerful recording industry. Um, There's a book by Mark Hertzman on it. Um, He's an historian. And so a lot of the recording industry and the roots of that are set in the 20s, where they've already had like very successful domestic sort of uh, consumption and diffusion throughout Latin America. So I think there's, you, you know, the roots, there, there's a very good setting for that to happen. And then, of course, there's this idea, you know, in Europe, um, in the late 60s about sort of discovering Latin America, uh, you know, kind of like a, a sort of exoticization that, you know, we might be critical of, but also but also um, means that there's a lot of, like, great opportunities for Brazilian artists to go play um in Europe and and this happens a lot too with the exiles, right? As exile groups from Chile, whether it's like folk music to to, yeah, yeah. to to Bossa Nova, right? Um, Europe opens doors for them to go and play festivals and things like that and continue to record. So I mean I think that relationship changes fundamentally. But the recording industry in Brazil is very, very strong. Um even in the twenties, thirties um of course controlled by white Brazilians and and there's a lot of appropriation of black music um but yeah i mean so i i wouldn't find that like quite so surprising and it's always gone along with football of course you can find like i don't know youtube videos of almost every footballer um women's football the it's women's football team you know playing music on the bus too so it's always been super integrated and seen as part of the same thing which which Kittelson's book also talks about right that kind of Jogo Bonito Nike ad it's the idea of brazilian culture as a kind of package right here's carnival here's bossa nova yeah <laughs> here's cariocas bridges.
1: cariocas what can i think
0: yeah yeah exactly and here's soccer right it's beautiful because um, it's beautiful more broadly and 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 at the same time he really does a good job in a lot of people have um, to show the ways in which that really paints over, you know, fiercely misogynistic football culture. Mm-hmm.